Hey guys, it's been a while <laughs> um, because we've had big life changes, the both of us. Um, mm-hmm. And one of them is Ruth, who went back to Bogor and is now at her parents' house. And you know what, dude? I realized when I came back home, you know, like you hear stories about parents who left alone by themselves after like a certain age because their kids are growing up and get out of the house. And I feel that happened to my mom. She just, I don't know, a hoarder in a way. And then like, you know, the house is not uh, maintained and she just like shops stuff. And the other day I just helped her clean her stuff. And like, I found like tons of tons of, because she's, she grew up in Lampung, right? So she collects Tanun Lampung. How do you say Tanun? See? In English, we- weaving, wavings. Well, yeah, lampung wavings, lampung fabrics. Can you call this fabric textile? Like, is it? Yeah, but like, yeah, she basically collects lampung or padang because that's padang and lampung is like pretty close, right? So yeah. southern Sumatra. Yeah, but I haven't studied. I haven't studied the pattern one by one. It was just like, damn, it's just a lot. I feel like that's a good thing to hoard. <laughs> At least it's better to like hoard um, woven textiles instead of, I don't know, like what do people hoard? That That's just like useless. Um, but yeah, I feel like that's also very interesting because Nay, who we have on this episode, approaches her stories, um, like has a story about Lao weaving symbology and how like that connects to like present day modern life. Um, And it's funny that you mentioned your mom because she also talks about how like motherhood inspired her to hone her storytelling. I mean, should we introduce her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is Nate? Ney Cesorino is a Lao-Canadian writer, literary critic, and visual artist. She received the Adina Talv Goodman Fellowship from One Story, the Rona Jaffe Fellowship at McDowell, as well as other fellowships and scholarship at many literary institutions, including Kundiman and Tin House. Recently, her work won the Tuscan Literary Awards and has been published or forthcoming in Kenya Review, Plowshares, Cora, Fairytale Review, and elsewhere. Her works are influenced by love folklore and weaving symbology. So the history of, of Lao weaving, you know, it was it was a knowledge that was passed down from mother to daughter. And some of these symbols were, you know, some were more known, but some were also quite obscure. Like you couldn't tell what it was because it's so stylized in, in the weaving. And it made me wonder, you know, we in the West, we have this uh, almost obsession with transparency and authenticity and everything out in the open, you know. But who has the right to these symbols in, in the same time that have been passed on from, from mother to, to daughter? And, you know, I, I read a science paper actually recently about trying to make a machine, um, a weaving machine that would create these patterns and it was like this all this intense math that I understood zero of by the way (laughs) but 
the, the folk tales I'm talking about are not the ones that already exist. I'm writing folk tales about Lao people in North America. And I'm creating, I'm mixing new symbols that I'm creating with old symbols that, that are more common. And to me, the importance behind it was to have an alternate way of storytelling that was not dependent on my education here in the West. I did not want, I did not want to be beholden to the written word because that's not how I grew up. I grew up in an oral culture where, where stories are passed down in close setting and domestic setting. And there's something about weaving. Weaving has always been a, you know, a domestic matter. It has always been a place of knowledge acquisition of, of, of transmission. And that's, that's really important. When we talk about making it into fast fashion, you're talking about mechanizing a process that relied on intimacy. You know, there was a knowledge transfer that happened. It wasn't just a pretty fabric. And so you, you can mechanize it and sell it and make it mainstream. And if it makes money to the artisans, I'm not against it, you know. But in the same time, I think we do have to think of what can be flattened in the process of mechanized, mechanized transmission. If I could compare it to eating meat, for example, you know, you were talking about orangutans, you know, where they have so many around them, you know, if it weren't for deforestation and all the big stuff that's happening around them, killing a few orangutans, like a few apes per year would barely make a dent, but it's easier to look there than to look at the mechanization of uh, deforestation, pollution, forest burning, cattle raising, and it's the same thing, I think, in, in fashion. You know, you're, talk, you're talking about this tradition that on a very small scale make, you know, tr- says something about the values that you're trying to instill. Because weaving takes time and it takes, you have to sit down with your ancestors to do it. That's just a fact. <laughs> you know, it's just, but by mechanizing it, you're removing that knowledge process. And what happens then? You decontextualize something. If you decontextualize it enough, does it mean anything after? And people say, well, it doesn't matter if it has no meaning, but it does. I'm realizing more and more as I'm studying and researching all this, that when you do not have context, when you do not have proper points of references for these stories, then it becomes what the internet can be. Everything is so decontextualized that you can take all these this data and invent an alternate reality to reality. Now we're living in, a, in, an, in an era where we don't know where truth is not even something that we agree on and what it is. Because truth used to be a truth is a communal process. You know, yes, the, the, the flower grows, that cannot be denied. 
but the way we talk about how that flower grows, that, that is a transfer of knowledge, right? What that, what, what that flower needs to grow, now that becomes a battleground. And if we take that conversation away, again, what happens to us? If we mechanize the way we eat meat, like a farmer killing his own pig on a farm is really different. He has to raise the pig. He has to know the pig. He has to be there when the pig is killed. And there, there's, you know, it's, I think there's a very real danger that we take for granted in, in mass producing things because we obliterate the act of transmission of knowledge, which comes with memory and history and trials and errors. Just because we can save everything on a cloud doesn't mean that everything in the cloud makes sense. You know, memory is not just a cloud of data. Just because you can keep everything in storage, just because you can remember, that does not make memory. That is not memory. So what happens when you mechanize memory? Does the memory still exist? See, that's what it's like to be. (laughs) (laughs) My kids are like. (gasps) (laughs) But I think you're very philosophical. And on your website, you said you are influenced by Toulouse. And now you're uh, studying the branch of knowledge from. It's the Nordic Sub-University. A friend turned me to, to that and. It's this group of artists and mostly PhD candidates. I'm not a PhD candidate, <laughs> but, and the, the notion of that, what the theme that they picked was heterotopia. Are you familiar with the concept? That's uh, the French guy, right? What's the, what's That's the name? Foucault. Yes, Foucault. So it's the idea that a space, the inside space of um, a place is different is, is um, unreal, uncanny, as opposed as to the world that changes around it. Mm. It's a space that is maintained to be unreal. So think of a prison, you know, time passes on the outside, but the inside, it's like this whole other world that doesn't follow the same rules at all of time and, and even space, right? Because that's not how you live. Take um, a museum, that's also a kind of heterotopia because all the timelines are mixed up in one space. You maintain the museum into this specific story over and over again. In the meantime, everything changes around it. So the reason I was interested in that topic is, you know, my novels about casino, I write a lot about museums. I write a lot about places like that because it, it, it's, um, it's, you know, being the daughter of war refugees makes you think a lot about spaces that are altered forever. Spaces that are real and not real, that are sitting in a space that shouldn't exist but are still there. Cluster bombs. The war is over, but the like, but Laos has, what, 80 million undetonated um, bombs, cluster bombs that are still buried in, in, in the ground. That is not that is very real and at the same time it's not you know because the war is technically over the war is done 
but there is a space where war continues just forever until we demine the whole thing. Right. Does the U- the U.S. government uh, give some help the people in Laos to to find mm-hmm. these bombs? Yeah, they start. I think they started under Obama to uh, give more money, hmm. and then of course during the Trump years it was like nothing, uh-huh. and now again. But <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of late. Like we need a little bit more than that right now. Yeah. Um, It's like Cambodia, you know, every year children, farmers die or lose limbs yeah. from it. And in Laos, we suffer from, and that's also the reason I'm interested in heterotopias, is it was a secret war, right? The bombing was kept secret for nine years. Mm. And so you don't even have the ability to mourn publicly about what happened to our people. You know, with uh, there's no... I think I read somewhere that maybe 10% of the population was wiped out in those bombings. And I, I do touch on that in, in my novel a little bit in, in the background. I can't write about war because it's not my direct um, experience. So it's hard for me to write about that, but I can write about it in the way that it has continued to live in my life through my parents, through the way they use space. I can tell by the way my mom used space that it came from war. You know, is that space real? It's real to me. Is the war real in the house? It's not real, but it's maintained. You know, this space continues to exist. Um, an example, growing up, my mom would keep the, keep us really quiet. Like she could make us like, just she'd give us one look and we knew it was like, Psh. we didn't talk. We had to listen. And I did that for years without knowing it, that I was creating the space inside wherever I lived, where I would be hypervigilant of any noise. I would just be ready to bolt. I had to be ready. I had to be. So, so when the pandemic hit, I, I joked to my friend and said, oh, we don't have feelings. We have plans. <laughs> Because war, you know, I am Despite not knowing war, I am the daughter of a war survivor, and the war lives on in my house. Yeah, not sure where we started from. <laughs> What was the question? Oh, the U.S. government uh, helping <laughs> the Lao. Oh yeah, so they didn't to get rid of the bombs. Yeah, the the biggest problem right now, I find one. Yeah, they have to demine the place, but the lack of support to Lao American communities in the United States has been abysmal. Um, especially for these deportations that have been happening on the West Coast. Yeah. I just, the nerve, just I can't believe the nerve of, of wanting to deport kids who've come here, who had who were placed, who were settled in the roughest financially underprivileged neighborhoods, expect them to flourish for some reason. Of course, that didn't happen. Of course, they made mistakes. And the war is over, and yet here we are again paying for it. There, there was a big, um, a pretty prominent case, um, Kao Sayli or something. I'm sorry if I am not pronouncing his name right. But basically during the California fires, mm-hmm. um, he was the one, like he was one of the people who helped um, put out the fires, the forest fires. Um, but then he was like, 
he had a deportation uh, order. Um, and a lot of people were like fighting against that because he comes from a minority in Laos um, where basically even if he goes there, he's not accepted mm-hmm. in the country because he he comes from like this ethnic minority that that's like like people are just like. Um, yeah, he, he was Hmong, I think. He was Hmong? Hmong. Was he Hmong? I thought he was Hmong. Um, he, was, was he, he Hmong? I, he, I, have, I have to double I've, check. I feel like he was not Hmong oh, because not. It, it like because I'm familiar with Hmong. Right. Um, it was an ethnic minority that I was not familiar with. So I was oh, like, yeah, oh. That's, that's very, very probable. Um, I, there's so many. We forget that Laos is like 50 to 70 different tribes. Right. Um, until the 1940s, I think only 40% of the country, I'll have to double check my figures, but was like Lao Lum, like Lao. And now it's like mostly Lao Lum, but for the longest time, it was just. Oh, Lu, Lumien? 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 Are they Lumien? Is he Lumien? I, it, it sounds like, I'm like, I'm like Googling right now. And <laughs> there's, there's. There are some articles that says like his family has Mian descent. Okay. Um, and that sounds kind of familiar in my mind. Like I yeah. remember reading that and I was like, oh, this isn't as familiar as the Hmong. Um, but they they said that that's an ethnic minority that's also like, you know, really suppressed mm-hmm. in Laos. Um, and yeah, so oh, I, I'm so I'm curious about the dynamics between. Lao people in Laos and how they view like Lao Americans or um, Lao people in the U.S. specifically, because it's like, um, I wonder if there's kind of like a resentment of it's of them being like, oh, like you guys are fellow Lao people, but you're with, you're in the place that destroyed our country kind of feeling or if that or if if it's so or if people even think that way like it's um I've never been to us yet mm. but I the Lao cult Lao culture is the French used to say when they were in Southeast Asia the Vietnamese plant the rice, the Cambodians watch the rice grow, and Lao people listen to it grow. It's just, it was for them a way to see that we were less productive and easygoing, right? Like the Vietnamese plant and then Cambodians and Lao just hang out in the bag and just kind of watch it grow. But it's a misunderstanding, I think, of what Lao culture is. And I think especially in, in Western culture, we are action driven. You know, it's like if you don't fight back, if you don't say something, then it must mean you are okay with it. And Lao people are not, and also because of their Buddhists, their Theravada Buddhists. Mm. So they have this, we have this notion that things must pass. Things will pass. We don't, we don't hold on. We try not to hold on to resentment because it is not good for the soul. We try to move on. Not that we forgive or it's, you know, 
It's just that we don't dwell on being angry or being vengeful. It's um, tomorrow is another day. And it's not like, it's not like deterministic. It's not like, oh, you know, whatever is going to happen, is going to happen. It's more profound than that. And I think a good clue is to look at our most famous folktale, which is Xiang Miang. So Xiang Miang is a trickster who always pulls a fast one on either the monk in the village or the king. He always finds a way to get the best of them, like to get the bet, like upper hand on them. And that kind of explains the mentality a little, you know, it's, there are things that last longer than tyranny. There are things that last longer than, you know, whatever you want to subject us to. It's not a passive, it's, it's a form of uh, quiet resistance to not hold on to that, to that. So, uh, studies have actually shown, which is really interesting, that the rates of trauma in Laos are lower than in Lao Americans. And the reason is because they have their community. You know, they have their rituals. They, have, they still go through what they go through together. But the displacement has created something very different for Lao Americans and Canadians. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a different thing to be in a land where you don't speak the language and you don't have your your spiritual practices there for you to, you know, to make you feel like you were part of a bigger story than whatever happened. In essence, you're removed. You're, you're removed from the story that you lived in. Yeah. I, people always like, it's, um, you know, like we were talking earlier about domesticity, which is often attributed to, to women. And also, you know, this idea that if you're passive, that you, because domestic is, is seen as passive for some reason. And, you know, it, it's easy to overlook and to think that you can overthrow. But as we have seen with weaving, it is not passive at all. There is a very real knowledge transfer that is happening. And you know, I, I can't help but think that's probably, you know, it's such a, it's such a huge power to be able to guide future stories that I think reproductive rights, you know, places like that, uh, you know, edu- education system where women teach, but men are the principals. You know, men are, are the ones who sit on the board, but women are the ones who teach the children. Women are, you know, cooks at home, but men are chefs, right? This dichotomy. And I, I think it has, I think it has to do with storytelling at the heart of it, of who gets to tell the story, who gets to, whose story gets to get passed down. And people think this is like an abstract notion, but if it were abstract, Tyrants wouldn't spend so much time. First thing they do when they get up in power, what do they do? They chase the artists away. They hire their own artists and they build immense statues of themselves. That is a transfer, you know? You're trying to impact the transfer of stories. Um, in, in, in the case of Laos and maybe Thailand to an extent, or I, I don't know much about Cambodian history, but 
when you look at the history, the origin story of how Laos came to be, not has the the the, the borders, the, the way the France or the Americans did, but be, even before them as a kingdom. I mean, the origin story is mixed with, you know, stories of great kings and and it, it's all mixed in with this uh, mythology of how the world came to be. So it was it was still attached to a, a system. And I find that really interesting. It's very patriarchal, isn't it? This 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 um looking down on on domestic space or where the food comes from, where the food is made, where the food is kept. I think looking, if you look at any origin story of a, of, a, of a people, of a community, it tells you a lot of what values were put forward at the beginning by whom and how it trickles down and how other system can either take away from it or reinforce it. So I, I tend to be very interested in origin myths of of cultures, of, of people, because in a time where you didn't have a lot of, especially in Southeast Asia, a lot of written documents that was passed down orally. You know, people would tell these stories and what you choose to pass down tells you a lot of what at the time they valued as being um, ways of survival, ways of maintaining cohesion in a group to survive. I think it always warrants a second look. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in Indonesia, they're still Wait. like, uh, yeah. A king. Like, I mean, he's a king, right? I don't know. I don't know much about Indonesia. I know the Lao king is in exile in France. Um, right. <laughs> but that always felt very bizarre to me. <laughs> but I get it. I mean, the whole mm. communist coup thing. But at the same time, why do we have a king again? There's like in Indonesia, there's still a special province region where it's still like ruled by a monarchy, basically, right? Like it's not the government has influence over it, but like they have sovereignty based on their kingdom. Um, and I believe like this is the first time where they don't have a son. So they have to figure out who's going to be the, you know, who's going to take over because it's like, oh my God, like such a, such a, like a, uh, what's the word? Not taboo, but like, it's so controversial to like have a queen instead of a king. Right. In their, I mean, their defense is their king's always called sultan and a woman cannot be called sultan. But as Sultania. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's yeah. that, you know, it, like the reasons are so absurd. It's like we don't have a word for that. It's like, oh, it's like when there was like saying women can go into space, we don't have an astronaut suit that is, you know, that fits a woman. It's like you just built a rocket ship. You don't think you can build a suit? Yeah. The excuses are flabbergasting. Yeah, that I mean, one of one of the uh, I listened to a previous podcast that you did. And one of like the parts that really touched me and resonated with me was when you talked about how um, you, you know, you talk about these folktales with your kids um, when the character is does not take action. And it's not like because. It's not like that, that like 
not taking action, that passivity is not like a negative thing because I write characters like that and people (laughs) normally like see that as like a negative thing. And I'm like, but you know, there's other ways of seeing, (laughs) of seeing the situation. Um, So that, that was like, kind of my favorite part of what you said in like uh, the previous podcast you did. I thank you. I it always I love fairy tales. I even love the old fashioned ones. And it always annoys me a little bit when people are calling them anti, you know, yes, it, it is true. You know, it was meant to convey, you know, a, a socialist order where women depended on men. But also what is being passed down in those fairy tales you don't see fairy tales passed down where the, the main hero kills everyone in the village and they live and he lives forever. We didn't choose that. We chose the one where the kindness towards animals and your elders gets you a reward at the end. And that that is not the straight moral of it, but there is still a transfer of values that we chose as, as, a, as a community. At some point we said it's probably more beneficial for us to transmit a value of let's be kind to the people around us and not be assholes to everyone. Maybe that would work out better in the long run. And yeah, there's, you know, there's historical context that makes it patriarchal and sexist, but there's also a part of it that we chose to save within that context. And when we talk about these, um, especially um, women, who seem like they're not doing enough, you know, like, oh, why didn't Cinderella like run away? And now you have like all these fairy tales where all, like every woman is now has to be this kick-ass warrior on yeah. top of the yeah. 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 Like, yeah. That is the Hollywood narrative to. now. <laughs> it's like, I, I have to know more tie now to just live <laughs> my, okay, I like more tie. <laughs> this notion that you have to be an action hero too mm-hmm. sometimes the only choice you made that day was to be kind to someone that is not passive especially if you've come from a world in fairy tales this this is this often the, the beginning it's a child who's traumatized by step parents by family life by external circumstances the worst happens to this kid normally right like their parents abandon them in the woods like really horrible stuff but that day they chose to be kind when they meet a cat wearing boots or you know they decide okay I'll share my piece of bread with this old lady who turns out to be a fairy but that's not why they share the bread what I want is to put the power back into those moments, into those decisions that are not passive. If you've been traumatized all your life and you still choose kindness, that's extraordinary. That is worth as much as fighting a dragon or conquering a troll, you know. And for some reason, we have been convinced of the powerlessness of, of making that choice. When it is not, it is, it is a small revolution in itself. Yeah. And this passive thing, I just, I used to be angry at my mom for being a stay-at-home mom. 
I was like, oh, you know, my friends' moms are, have these careers and these things. And I, I really resented that she was a seamstress at home. And, she, and I used to think, you don't do anything interesting. And when I became a mother myself, you know, I started resenting myself. I started hating myself for it. It was like, oh, all I do is like pick up toys off the floor and make food and wash the laundry. And then I had to ask myself, well, why am I so angry about, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really boring to do and tedious and annoying. But beyond that, like where does this self-hatred for motherhood, for, for the domestic setting come from? And getting also, getting it from other women, other women who chose to stay in a career, you know. And it came down to, oh, it's, it's not good enough to do this, you know, to, to be, you're, you're passive. You're not taking control of your destiny for some reason. You're at the mercy of your children. And again, it's all action words, you know, driven, working, producing, you know, and it's not true. You know, I, I really credit the way I learned storytelling. I only started writing a couple, three years ago and I reached a pretty phenomenal like level of success for starting so late mm. and in such a slow town. But I think the reason why is because I, le- I, I used to try to imitate writing like the big white writers because I thought that's what big literary aspirations was at the very, very beginning. But then I, that, like, it didn't, I didn't connect to it. So I never came out right. And then I realized that my favorite stories were the ones from the women. Like when they would gather in the house, like in my mom's place, and then they would gossip. And if you think, if you break down the mechanics of gossip, it is amazing because there's a whole body language into it. You know, and they lean in and like... There's an arc to the story. Yeah. And you're like, ooh, you know? And it's, it's a contract. It says, if you bear with me for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to deliver you something juicy. Something juicy. <laughs> you know? And you're like, I'm in. <laughs> and again, there are so many treasures in the domestic space like that. And when I tell a story... That those are the voices inside my head where I, I'm going to throw a bunch of things and, you know, just bear with me. I have this delicious piece of gossip that I'm going to unravel. And by the end, you're like, oh, my God. And that's just fun. It's not about wanting to be the next Hemingway or wanting to write the great American novel. I just want to tell stories the way my elders did, especially my my grandmothers and my aunties. And, and that has a space in the world of storytelling. That is an art form into itself mm-hmm. that, that deserve its place of importance in, you know, the, whatever you want to call it, you know, the, the academia or the stuff, but it, it has a space. And I think Southeast Asian writers, we do that without even realizing yeah. we do when we talk, I can hear it when we talk in between Southeast Asians. It is colorful. It is vivid. It is funny. It is always funny. It's never, we're never just victims in these stories. You know, mm-hmm. it could, like the world could end 
And still you talk about sex. You somehow manage to talk <laughs> about someone's penis in there, even though you're probably going to die in the next five minutes. But isn't that funny? That guy over there has an erection. You know, they would point that out. Can I, can I tell you a funny story? So like, I, like, I love how you say Southeast Asians like talk in a very colorful way. Cause I definitely feel like the way I talk is like very expressive. And so I was in Korea with my mom and like when my mom and I talk, like we're very expressive. Like it's definitely not the, you know, the the stereotype of like Asian American woman being like really, oh, demure or whatever. <laughs> um, and so this like older Korean woman, she started spraying us with water to like chase us away. And at first we thought she was like spraying the clothes, but then she started spraying it our way. So we're like, wait, we're not the clothes. Why are you spraying us? And then after we talked to like more people and I told these people a story, like my mom was like, by the way, like my mom went ballistics. Um, but people started telling us it's because like we were the first customers of the day and it was like bad luck to have such intense energy because they want like a calm, serene thing. And these two like Southeast Asian women just like going. And that's when I realized like, oh yeah, like we're Asian, but we're very different in the way we express ourselves. Yeah. And it's wonderful. And I think I really want us Southeast Asian women, especially to take up way more space in the Asian American, you know, storytelling world, whether it's like through drama, through acting, I, I want more of that. And 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 I, <laughs> my husband's like, "What? Why are you arguing with me?" He's like, "I'm not arguing. This is the conversation." We're gonna make great aunties. I'm just gonna say, we're gonna make. <laughs> I remember, I think in your, which one is it? It was about like a group of villagers talking about the, Jap- the Japanese oh. and then the, the Americans. And then someone says like, yeah, we miss the French. And like, that mm-hmm. is a kind of like dark comedy that we always listen to in Indonesia. Like, why don't, why didn't we colonize by the British instead of the Dutch, you know? <laughs> like this sense of humor that yeah we we have an immense amount of wit i think in southeast asian culture because it's a form of resistance you know you might take me down but i'm gonna make fun of you while you take me down i'm not gonna let you have the last laugh you know it, it's yeah it's it's exactly and, and actually that happened to my mom she was the one the child who was in that trench and she really had to go poop And she was like, I'm so embarrassed. I don't want to poop in front of like all my elders in the village. And so she just ran out, found a corner. And she's and she tells me this story, like, and the bombs are falling. And I'm like, I really got to poop. You know, when you got to poop, you got to poop. I'm like, oh my God, mother. <laughs> oh, I love that. But, you know, and she's like, oh, you know, my husband makes Can I ask the the story behind why your parents chose Canada to migrate? Mm -hmm. So Laos was a French colony for a short time. But after that, you know, Laos still sort of belonged to what they call the Francophonie, which the French, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the Commonwealth, but for French people. And it's based Mm -hmm. almost solely on, anyway, 
you know, we have this tie to to this bond, this manufactured manufactured bond through language, I would say. But my uncle was already studying in Quebec uh, as an engineer when the communist coup happened. And so when my mom got scared and fled, her brother just volunteered to sponsor her into Quebec. And Quebec had a more welcoming stance if you were from a Francophone country because French colonies, and especially Quebec, have this very strong policy of protecting the French language. And so they invite more French people to come in. And there is this law that was passed when I was born, actually, that if you were the children of immigrants or refugees or people, you had to go to school in French up until the end of high school. If you wanted to go to high school in English, you had to show proof that your one of your parents or grandparents went to school in English. And this was a way to safeguard the safe language. So that's why they went to Quebec, because it was it was easier. They had, they had this very welcoming stance. Of course, my parents didn't really speak French, but you know, at least it was from another French colony. Yeah. Even though they don't call themselves colonies anymore, but and so we moved there. So they moved there and I was born there. And um, it's a very weird thing to be born uh, in a, you know, to go from, to be born in a French colony that is so insistent on the French language being the reason that you are a Francophone. It becomes such a strong part of your identity and it's on purpose. It's, it's done that way. And that's why I grew up there. I was raised in French. My friends spoke French. I didn't really speak English until maybe when I was in my late teens, I started speaking in English. Before that, it was all in French and Lao, because my parents spoke Lao. And um, there was a community there, a very, very small one, but... uh, that's uh, that's the reason we chose to like we didn't really choose it was just the easiest easiest way to get to anywhere else. Right. Yeah. I'm just curious if the if that is the goal to preserve like French language in in Canada, why a lot of like French people from French think that French Canadian sounds different. <laughs> this is actually really <laughs> funny. So, I mean, the French people in Quebec were basically abandoned by their country, you know, around the French Revolution when they cut the heads off of their kings Mm. over there. And so they were surrounded by the English who didn't treat them super well. Uh, It it was like the English were in position of power. And so they were isolated from France for a while. And so their language, actually, the accent is probably closer to old French than to the new French. Meanwhile, in France, um, you know, it's very continental. They continue to mix and mingle with the other countries in Europe. And, you know, so they evolve in two different directions. Uh, Whereas, again, has been this colony that was abandoned in this very cold country. Uh, The Catholic Church took the place of monarchy in the sense that it became, the church became the place where people 
found support and community, but also, you know, a very conservative regime as well of having tons of kids and, and you know, fear of the stranger and, and things like that. And, um, you know, Catholic faith is, is a very specific set of values as well. And so I think France always looked down on Quebec because the accent sounds rougher, but in the same time, it's what French, it's yes, part of French sorry. history. Mm. But yeah. Fran- French who are, are funny. They always, they have like tons of English words in their own vocabulary. And yeah. then they give Quebecers a really hard time. I can speak both. I can speak with both accent, but the Quebec accent is close to my heart. And it's weird because it creates this bond with other French colonies. When I first came to the United States, I was really excited to meet other Lao people. You know, I thought, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to join the community and do all this stuff. But actually, it, it felt very weird in, in that I didn't have much in common with them. But I met people who were Senegalese and immediately it clicked because we spoke French to each other. We were like, oh, oui, 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 you know. You know, it was like it was immediate. The connection, the bond was like there. And it was because we were, you know, people of color who spoke this language together, you know, that built its bridge. And that was a, a difficult thing to face that it made me have less in common with the Lao people here. And it's hard to explain why. It's hard to untangle. It's like a process, right? You're still, I'm still trying to figure out what, like how, how it changes the way you communicate, you travel, the way you move in the world. France is a really interesting, interest. I was interesting because I can't think of any other word. But um, what they did with the French language was so insidious. When I realized that I would not have the means to teach my kids French or I didn't have whatever I needed or the surroundings or the, I cried. I was heartbroken. But I was, I never cried for not like thinking of Lao that way. Mm. But I did for French. And you don't realize how the whole, how colonialism instills it as part of your identity. And it is so strongly woven within you. And I will, and the thing is, I cannot change that part of me. That is the way that I was brought up. And it's the way, you know, that is part of me. It's the way that open, you know, when I first explored the world through that lens, when I speak Lao in public, or, you know, people, people don't say, oh, wow, you're, you're bilingual. That's not what they say. You know, they're wondering if I can speak English, right? But if I speak French, it's like, oh, you're bilingual. It's so, it's, oh, it's so nice. It's so, you know, like I get this completely different reaction. And so it, it affects the space that I move in. And that changes me in return when, you know, not, and, and it's difficult to explain exactly why or how but it's just like being pulled into different dimension 
and then you carry this dimension with you where, wherever you are because you, you, you have that option to step out in a way that others don't. You know, it's a form of privilege. It, it, you know, it's, it's to be able to speak French immediately gets you a different treatment. One time we were on a flight, my husband and I and our daughter was still a baby. And um, the, we had another couple next to us with a young baby as well, but they were Polish and they didn't speak French. And it didn't matter what they asked, how nicely, how kind they were, the air attendants ignored them completely. But I spoke with you know, my most friends, French accent, and they would not stop coming by. They would like buckle the seat belt for me. I didn't ask for anything. They would bring stuff for the baby. They would like talk to my husband. Even but it, it changed completely. And it changed. And again, that changes the access that I have. And when I meet other Lao people who are not from a, a French colony, there's this this, this weirdness of, of, that comes from me from not knowing how to interact outside of the French lens. And it's something that is not conscious. It's something that's unconscious because, because, because culture is, is, is a code, right? And I haven't cracked the code that is not French quite yet because it is such an integral part of my identity. And it's a love-hate relationship in that I love everything that I learn from my French upbringing. But also I am a little, I'm a little resentful because all the things that I have loved, the museums and the arts, you know, those are things that I do love and the novels, the pastries, you know, it it's all has this, this um, backstory of domination, right? Over me personally in my, in my own life. It, it gave it more worth. It gave it more space. It gave a part of my identity to it. I'm not, a, I'm not against, you know, being from different cultures because my kids are obviously mixed. But in the same time, I resent the way it, the way it made me a foreigner, a little bit of foreign in my own culture. Yeah. yeah. So we were talking about your husband earlier. I'm just wondering, is that the, the story behind the Roman scam? <laughs> <laughs> um, my story, Roman scam, I wrote because I was intrigued by the notion of wanting to be loved so bad that you are willing to disregard every red flag. And I was trying to imagine what if you didn't know there were red flags, but you needed that love so much that you would manipulate the scammer force like creating this bond with them so that they could give you something that you wanted more than anything more than money, more than anything. I'm always, I think about love a lot because I find it's such a, because I don't understand it. 
basically. Mm. I don't I don't understand how boundaries work for one person and then for the next person the boundaries are completely different. How how some people can say, oh, you can't say the L word just yet, it's too early. And the next person said, but no, you have to say it as soon as you feel it. Mm. I debate a lot with what is demanded of us out of love and what we demand in the Mm. name of it. You know, we... Family, for example, I think a lot of, uh, I know in my culture, um, family, filial piety, sorry, I don't know, like the, the, this ingrained idea that, you know, you are so loving to your parents, so grateful, so everything. And yet, what if, what if your parents give you a really hard time growing up? What if they were neglectful and violent and abusive? What is what is demanded out of you that is duty or love? Because you might not hate them. It would be simple if you could hate them for not giving you the love that you needed. Mm. But it doesn't work that way. And so romance scam is, I think, reflective of a lot of relationships in that in order to be loved, we make these bargains sometimes with the devil. We make these deals. I mean, whether that deal works out for us in the long run or not. Mm. I guess that's that's what you try to figure out all your life, right? Like, right. was it worth it? You know, but I really like uh, romance cam. I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bizarre and, like, funny, but it's not at the same time. Like, you can, like, well, she's in love. <laughs> then, like, this... These are the things that she demands him to do, which is, yeah, I like that a lot. She knows what he wants and she's willing to pretend to go along with whatever he has, not whatever he wants. But, you know, loving and wanting are very different things. Different things, yeah. You know, and I just... um, I'm always baffled by love. I don't, even if, even if you strip the social construct from it, I am intrigued by the biology of it, the usefulness in biology of having this, this feeling, you know, that we make way more complicated than two birds or two cats or two mm-hmm. fish, you know, it, two ducks. Humans have this incredible propensity to make love hyper complicated and I always wonder what is what is the purpose of like what's the point like why are we saddled with this social concept that we cannot live without and yet you know you well you can't you know you babies when they're born if they don't if they're not held if they're not hugged they Mm -hmm. actually develop brain problems it's just the whole thing is 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 uh is a mystery to me and and I love mystery novels. So there it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Speaking of novels, can you tell us more about your new novel? Sure. I just finished the draft and I'm revising it right now. I finished the draft this um, this winter and I'm still kind of not satisfied with it. But it is the story. It's a story in Southeast Asia uh, in a casino where animals that are endangered are served to the patrons, to wealthy patrons. And there's a brother and sister. She doesn't really want to work there. She's a local girl. Local girls don't usually work there, but she she works there because she's strangely knowledgeable in a lot of things. And one day this rare antelope shows up in their backyard and her brother's sick. And somehow the presence of this antelope makes her brother feel better. Like he suddenly heals. But then at the casino, they hear that there's this strange animal that's very rare. It's not useful medicinally or anything, but they want it because it's rare. And so she has to face the choice of whether to give up this animal or to save it. Like she doesn't, like either way, if she gets the reward money, she can send her brother to a specialized care to take care of his illness. So the whole book is basically down to this choice. And the reason I chose something so controversial as a topic, eating endangered species, was that it was so easy to exoticize um, not just the species that these wealthy patrons eat, but the patrons themselves and the locals that you know live in the area. And I, I guess I wanted to show that the second you name something exotic, the second you call it exotic, it is destined for violence. Mm-hmm. Um, to be exotic is to be desirable, is to contain a form of desire. Because if it's not exotic, if somebody, if, you know, they go to a country and they see something horrible, they don't say, oh, how exotic. They say how barbaric, yeah. how exotic has this desire that invites violence. And I wanted to explore that. But in the novel, what I do when they serve the meals, you expect them to eat these Asian dishes. But what I did was I pull these meals from old European feasts and American feasts. These very famous feasts, I went and looked at all the menus and then I placed that in the casino in Southeast Asia to show kind of like the, how this form of desire is not about, you know, the, it's not about bad people eating endangered species. It's, it's, it, the roots are deeper in the way we treat the environment, in the way if we have power, enough power and enough money to back all desires, then it's a free for all, right? Like we are just, we just let our desire run amok and we just devour everything on our path. Do you know about the passenger pigeon in the United States? I don't know. It was a type of pigeon, passenger pigeon in the United States that was so... There were so many of them, you'd have like black clouds of them in the sky. They say you'd shoot in the air and like 50 would fall. And they became extinct because Americans kept ate them so much 
because it was a breed of pigeon that would um, travel together. Like they would flock together. And so they would be in the forest together. So they were really easy to catch and they became extinct, even though there was so many of them that you, no one ever thought they would run out of pigeons. Like thinking you run out of mosquitoes, Mm. you know, you just didn't think it was possible. And that's a history that I want to bring in that area. I'm using the area as an excuse to subvert the judgment of, you know, I mean, it gets complicated, but the the idea that people in other countries don't respect the environment or don't respect respect animals, and and it's such a it's a it, it it's not a new story. It's a very 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 old story, and that's what I'm trying to say, I guess, about the way we view the environment, about how we place ourselves in relation to it. And there's nothing I think more striking than a feast to show us how we consume anything. And what does that say? Like, what do we consume in the food? It's just that the food is the method of getting it that we consume as well. We have to accept that the way we got this food is okay, you know, to eat it. We, we, we're fine with it, you know? And what does that do to us in the long run as, as humans, as people to accept these methods? in our food, not just the food, but we ingest the methods as well. What is that going to do to us in the long run? That was, that's the novel. (laughs) (laughs) I want to cry now because (laughs) I want to read it. I can't wait to read it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I, um, but it's funny. I saw, you know, we, in our community, in all our communities, we all, I think we have this debate right now of, Let's not have more food stories, you know, let's not have, because we Asians is not just about food. I don't know. I'm, I'm a little, I understand not wanting to be reduced to food. I think that's really important. I think that's very, very true. And in the same time, I'm a little worried about the discourse we have right now in creative circles in the Asian community, accusations of catering to the white gaze fly a little too easily for my taste because I think it is a very harsh thing, first of all, to levy at someone, but it is easy to levy if you assume that every Asian community, every diaspora is at the same level of the conversation. And it's great for Asians who got there. But when I think of my community, we only just emerged from this trauma. We only just were able to bend together to save our brothers and sisters from being deported. We might not have the correct language to talk about it yet. We might still be entrapped by the white gaze, you know, not necessarily me or people, but, you know, and a lot of Asian writers who are coming from those diaspora are going to try to figure it out in a very public way, especially now. And I'm really concerned about just jumping the gun and saying, oh, you're catering to the white gaze. It's like, let's just hold off just one second and see, like, we're not all at that conversation. 
And I don't think it is fair to demand that people are at that same level. The irony I find is that Southeast Asian communities tend to, are much more likely to live next to black communities. But we, but Southeast Asian community get told a lot on how to say things, how to, what stories they should not talk about anymore because we're, you know, we, we should no longer talk about the struggle. We should talk about more than that. You know, we are more than the struggle. And I'm like, excuse me. Uh, my mom is still a seamstress. She's still, you know, she's still, that is still, or that is still my world back home in Montreal. I might be here, but this is very recent. If there is a writer who wants to talk about that, doesn't mean that you, they can't do it critically. doesn't mean they will do it perfectly, but at least we should give that space to figure it out and not to, I really don't like top to bottom approach to these things. And I guess like too bad for the people who don't want food stories. Cause like our podcast is like all food stories. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's how we talk about right. it. Yeah. Um, but you know, and I understand like when they talk about food stories, it's like probably like, oh, I was made fun of like bringing this exotic quote unquote exotic food to school, like that kind of food stories or like my mom packing me a lunch, blah, blah, blah. They don't talk about how they traded New York for an entire country for sugar, for nutmeg. <laughs> they don't talk about how sugar was like grab from like Papua and like basically shape the way the whole world is right now through its trade quote unquote trade which is like literally like actually slavery (laughs) um so so yeah um but I I I like writing about food and I'm not about to stop I use it a lot in the story I wrote about um the queen of Sheba where she uses the spicy food, the irony is that I actually copying a story from Denmark or Sweden or something, and I put Lao people in it instead, you know, just, it it was, it was, it was never about, and it's funny, it was never about the Lao food itself, right? It was about, it was about truth. It was about how we, how we present the truth. Right. And the story is so neat and so tidy. And yet the protagonist is anything but neat and tidy. And so there's there's that thing there. Right? You're like, would the story really, really be this perfect coming from a person who is dripping juice all over herself and wears these bright colors and steel coats from men that she brings back to her apartment? You know, that's we still have a lot to explore in food. And plus food is delicious. So, yes. Well, since we're talking about food, to end our podcast, usually we ask our guests uh, two questions. First one is, what is your favorite Laotian food? Oh, that's, that's easy because I've been craving it for the past six <laughs> months. It's um, Gengnamite. It's, uh, it's like a bamboo shoot stew. And it is so representative of, of Lao people foraging. It's like bamboo shoots, yanang leaves, wood mushrooms. Um, it's, it's very herbal and it's a bit of fish paste in it. It's a thick, spicy forest stew 
basically, and I love it. I crave it, but it's, I don't know how to make it. It's quite complicated. And so my mom, every time she makes it, she says a Tupperware in Montreal for me. And now I don't know how many she has, but I'm just like, open the border. (laughs) Open the border. (laughs) And it's not a dish you typically find in in, in restaurants because it's, you know, it's quite a, more now. Is it like spicy, spicy? Yeah, it's spicy. It's thick. You know, it's kind of has a gelatinous coating. It's not. It's not something that would be necessarily popular in restaurants. And Is it kind of, of, kind of like tom yum? Uh, no, no. So the stew is green, like really green, uh-huh. and it is creamy. It has a creamy texture, okay. but there's no cream in it. It's just from the leaf being like uh-huh. and thickened with the fish paste and it is a little pungent and spicy it's it's very woodsy i mean it sounds really good i love oh yeah wood, i, I think it is good i my love mother fish has paste. theory that women like it more than men so Ooh. i will have to test this notion in mm. like a scientific study mm. <laughs> yeah mm. but 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 what's her reasoning for that theory oh she doesn't have any that's how my mother works she just knows things because i feel like in in like southeast asian but also like general asian um cuisines there are food like quote-unquote for women Mm. um you know like after giving birth like there are Mm. foods that you should eat um before giving birth, um, like if you have a heavy period, like how to replenish yourself and things like that. And so I was like, oh, like, I wonder if that one was like a quote unquote, like woman's food or if it's just, she just has a theory. No, If I were to take, take a guess, I would say probably has to do with foraging. It require, you know, you would probably require extensive foraging to make that kind of stew mm. um, back in, back in the day, especially. And I think that would probably be the dominion of, of women to know to know the plants and the woods so well while men were more likely to fish or, or to hunt you know in a traditional society like that and it, it is time consuming and i think any dish that's time consuming means women gather in a kitchen mm, yeah and i cooks better than my mom <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if it's because my mom is clever she ruined a few meals and after that my father was like no no, no, no. I'll, I will cook from now on. And I feel like, oh, my mom's a horrible cook. And now I'm like, oh, <laughs> I might have pulled something here that. <laughs> and I learned from her because I interviewed for this job one time and it was like this old boys club. Right. And at the end, and it's like, there's anything you'd like to tell us about you? And I said, Yes, I don't know how to make coffee. I'm horrible at making coffee. You know, people think, you know, that my coffee tastes terrible. And they're like, oh, we'll make sure to not have you make coffee. So I never had to make coffee for any of those old guys. They would have like. (laughs) That's clever. I love that. (laughs) I love that. That is very loud, by the way. Mm. (laughs) Mm. See, passive resistance. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> are you planning on going to Laos anytime soon in the future well you know once the pandemic I think comes down the reason I never went was um 
it was it was complicated. You know, often when you go to Asia, especially if you you're poor, there's an expectation of bring lots of gifts mm-hmm. for for everyone. And um, financially, something that my parents were not in a position to do. So it was something that I didn't feel comfortable doing. But yeah, we are planning to go. In a couple of years, my parents, my husband and my two kids. My two kids are very much into Lao culture now um, of their own volition. Like, you know, they're suddenly they've kind of realized that they were different and they like it. And it's, it's really, really cool to see. And it's taught me a lot <clears throat> about my relationship with, with the French culture, because to them, it's just another culture. You know, it wasn't the dominant force of their lives, but they see Lao has, has this fun thing. So I am learning about my culture through my kids as well. All the things they want to do, all the stories they want to hear, the places they want to go. And uh, yeah, it's, it's so great to learn from your kids about your own self. I think that's a great gift. Yeah, that's I think beautiful. I think that was like a beautiful ending. Yeah. Well, I am a storyteller. There you very, go. You are a very good storyteller. <laughs> so at your farewell party, actually, I met one of your friends. Uh, like we we just happened to talk about film and books, and one of the films that we both sort of like gushed about because it is a really great film is called Tigers Are Not Afraid, and it reminded me a lot of Nay's writing, I guess, because it uses fairy tales to talk about modern societal issues in life. So it's funny because I watched that film a long time ago. And then while we were editing Nay's episode, I stumbled upon a talk that the filmmaker Isa Lopez did with uh, Guillermo del Toro. And she was basically saying how it was so effortless for her to write the film. Basically, in film, I guess people say you vomit your draft. And she was talking about how it was just like a flow. And Guillermo del Toro also said, like, you can feel that the movie has this like very natural flow and you're not forcing it. And the the comparison that he used um, is that when artists try to force a story, it's not vomiting, it's dry heaving because there's nothing there, but you're like trying to get things out. Um, and it sort of reminded me of the analogy that you use which was, I think you said, you can feel, you can hear if a writer or a poet or a novelist or like a writer on a TV show is yelling. So I felt like, because we talked about this and how Nay's writing has sort of like this very like effortless flow. I don't know how to like say it in English. Um, I think in Indonesian, the word is called luas. Uh, yeah, her way of storytelling is like Luas. It's not kaku. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like maksa, right? She doesn't like force her story. That's what you're trying to say, right? It's just like yeah, that style. Yeah, it's not. I mean, reading her story is like reading like old Indonesian folklore, like um, the you know the the sisters of how do you say it? sisters of onions. Oh, bawang merah, bawang putih. Yeah. Garlic and shallot. Is that Yeah. <laughs> the onion sister. The onion sisters. It just kind of reminds me of like, you know, childhood stories and like, yeah, dongeng. 
folklore. Mm. I feel like her her stories actually remind me of Malin Kundang. Right, because it it has that sort of like an energy. It's like a it's not a good term, but like that is the the feeling that I get when I'm reading her words. I feel like the the Onion Sisters when they growing up, you know, <laughs> when they're adult. This this the the, the adult version. Oh, I really like that. I really like that comparison. Actually, I'm gonna Google it now. Like, what do you call the bawang merah, bawang putih in English? There's no English red onion and garlic. <laughs> That's <sighs> yeah. See, I garlic and shallot. But well, I guess because they're not really sister sisters. It's like uh, Cinderella sister. It's like the tra- like so many things are lost in translation, and I guess that relates to our next episode, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I guess you guys will have to tune into our next episode where we might explore that. So thanks for listening, and thanks to Nay for giving us a time in between her busy schedule of writing her new novel that is coming up soon, I guess, or next year. Mm-hmm. And if you want to read and follow her work, head to saysorinu.com. That's S-A-Y-S-O-U-R-I-N-H-O.com. We'll see you in the next feast. This is Ruth. And this is Alexandra.